Welcome to our first video episode of Econopolitics, our new podcast and video series sponsored by the Economics and Politics section of LAZA, the Latin American Studies Association. With me today is my co-host, Fabricio Chagas Vasquez in Sao Paulo. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's show. Please know that this episode is being recorded and will be available for viewing on our YouTube channel called Econopolitics Lhasa following the show. Please spread the word and follow us on social media and on the section website. All are welcome. Today's guest, Otaviano Canuto, is the type of guest we had in mind when we decided to create this series. Someone who knows Latin America very well, a specialist in economics, finance, development, and social policies, with extensive experience in multilateral development organizations, academia, and private consulting. So welcome, Otaviano. We're delighted to have you as our very first guest. It's my honor and pleasure. Thank you. Taviano, we have a lot to discuss, so let's begin with your general appraisal of the current state of the region's economy at the end of a year of COVID. Right. Uh, well, I, I see for next year uh, the continuation of the, uh, the recovery that we have seen in most countries in the region during the second part of the year. Of course, red with a lot of uncertainty because we have the possibility of new waves of contamination and, and therefore of new rounds of uh, social isolation, uh, either as mandatory policies by governments and or by uh, voluntary uh, uh, decisions by, 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 uh, by the population in this uh, inevitably has an impact on the contact intensive service. So the recovery that we have been watching in some countries there, they have, as they have, let's say, uh, released the population from, from, from uh, uh, isolation, from, from, from containment, uh, is it will depend on, on how things go. I, uh, I guess that the, uh, at the level of most countries, this is too broad, too general, but uh, in some case, things will not be as fine as, uh, as I'm saying. But overall, the speed of the recovery will depend particularly on, on, a, on at least five, five items. First, of course, as I said, the COVID path and, uh, and the authorities' effectiveness in dealing with the pandemic. Uh, second, the timing of access by the general population to vaccines. Uh, this is something that uh, we are watching different uh, stance taken by the countries and uh, a lot will be at stake uh, there. Third, uh, the policy room and the willingness to, uh, to extend part of the exceptional uh, uh, policy stimulus that we watch this year. And this varies among countries. Fourth, the capacity to contain uh, and preferably lower the political and social risk, which is a possibility as we saw uh, last year and which may well come to the fore again, uh, given the, the dire straits uh, left by the, the COVID. 
And fifth, most important maybe, the, uh, the quality of policy leadership, because that will be important to boost confidence, to attract investment, and to steer reforms uh, to make these economies uh, more flexible, resilient, and productive. So the overall, the main risks and challenge that the uh, economies in the region will face uh, in 2021 are predominantly domestic rather than external. That's where the story will be told in each one of them. Looking uh, at the specific role of the leading multilateral organizations in the region, World Bank, IMF, and IDB, what has been their role during COVID and how do you rate the, the effectiveness of their role? Right. I, having spent 15 years of my professional life working in several, in fact, 16 if I count the time at the government, working at all sides of the relationship of the countries with these institutions. Uh, I was a vice president at the Inter-American Development Bank and, and I was also a vice president at the World Bank. I was also a member of the board of the IMF and the World Bank. And I also uh, was a vice president uh, at the IDB, as I said, but also on the government side. Uh, in a nutshell, look, the role of these institutions is helpful, but they cannot save everything, particularly if one takes into account the limits of resource that these institutions uh, face. So don't expect miracles from, from these multilateral institutions. The IMF is still, let's say, the one that has the, uh, the, the, the power, the firepower really to make a difference in situations of a liquidity crisis of countries. But even so, uh, the money coming, the short-term funding coming from the IMF helps countries face balance of payments problems, but ultimately the structural reforms and, and the actions that are needed to face crisis and so on uh, will need more than that. We'll need some long-term funding and, and long-term funding cannot necessarily be found at plenty in these institutions. They all face capital constraints I was at the board of the World Bank when, when the latest capital increase was approved. That was 2018. But it takes time for this to, to, to for the money to come in, uh, approvals in the countries and so on. And, uh, and, and even the World Bank that has approved recently, as I said, 2018, the capital increase is very tight. In the region is subject to, let's say, uh, another uh, constraint, which is the fact that the major shareholders want these institutions to dedicate most of their uh, lending space to other countries, to other regions, to, to low-income countries. Uh, there is the mentality that uh, some of these countries may already uh, do it by their own, like China and, 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 and Brazil and Mexico. And, and so there is the resistance to increasing the exposure of these institutions. Now, there is the case of the IDB, which is focused on, on 
specifically on on Latin America. Uh, that's where the, its clientele is, but it's facing capital constraints. It's to be seen if the newly elected president, uh, who has campaigned based on on a, uh, the promise of a capital increase, will manage to do it. Uh, but even so, no one can expect miracles. They are helpful. Uh, they have adapted themselves during COVID. They have shifted their portfolio toward uh, supporting health spending, toward uh, uh, boosting social protection systems, and so on. Obviously, given the urgency of, of, of these issue, of those issues. Uh, but when it comes to really funding development, uh, the countries have to to you know do other things and 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 count on other source of funding or internet. having said that look these institutions still uh, play an important role in what i called in my world bank times a hummingbird role why uh they pollinize knowledge they learn in one country they bring knowledge they learn with, with uh, particularly emerging market economies, middle-income countries, and they're able to carry knowledge, uh, their learning to other countries. So they play the role of a, a pollinizer of knowledge. I could give you several examples. One of them uh, is the Brazilian conditional cash transfer, the Bolsa Familia. The World Bank was engaged in the very beginning helped particularly to develop systems of uh, monitoring and, and, and testing and checking uh, whether the, the money was going to where it should go. And then the World Bank got in love with the conditional cash transfer. I was already uh, here at Washington and I was called for instance to talk about it uh, in Kenya, in Japan, in, in Paris, you name it. Uh, and. And the World Bank was able, let's say, to, to carry the knowledge acquired in Brazil uh, uh, to those countries. Another example comes from, from flood management. Yes, I, that one is a very much important one. I, uh, I worked with the Philippines in the last period of my, of my stay at the World Bank. And uh, the World Bank developed a project of flood management in Manila. And uh, any of you who has, have been there will understand what I mean, if that's something really necessary. And the team that uh, prepared the report, the, the, the project, was the same team that had worked in Salvador, Bahia, in doing a similar thing, a very successful uh, case of uh, of, uh, of uh, dealing with uh, flood management in outskirts of, uh, of Salvador. And uh, that was clearly knowledge being carried. So they, these, these institutions play a very positive role. As I said, they are of extremely help, but you cannot look at them as saviors, as responsible for uh, doing everything that it takes for countries uh, in the region. While, uh... Most people's attention is focused around those main multilateral institutions. There are other regional development institutions locally, such as BNDES in Brazil, CAF, etc. What about the role of these other development institutions um, over the last year uh, during okay. the period of COVID? 
they are very much complementary. And I would say that uh, they will grow in their relative importance in the following years. And I explain. You aptly uh, mentioned CAF. CAF had a recent boost of capital and uh, it is doing a great job. Uh, let's, let's think of the new development bank, uh, the development bank created by the BRICS countries. Let's think of the Asian Infrastructure Investment uh, Bank, the AIIB, created by the Chinese and, and being joined by everybody else except for the US and so on. They are part of what I have called in some of my writings and talks, uh, sort of a fragmentation of the multilateral development institution, including the national development banks. There was, after the global financial crisis, uh, 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 a call for BRICS. I was already here. At the time, I was at the IDB, and then I saw the unfolding of this process as a vice president at the World Bank. There was a call for the BRICS to come with money and, and, and participate in, uh, in an increase of resource for the Bretton Woods institutions. Uh, it was right after the financial crisis and uh, the emerging market economies were doing quite well. I wrote a book uh, about the day after tomorrow, uh, talking about the possible switchover of locomotives in the global economy. Uh, was a, a bit too enthusiastic. <laughs> uh, 2010. Uh, anyway, uh, and, and there was this coming. Uh, the BRICS countries uh, increased their share uh, of quotas at the IMF, of the capital uh, at the World Bank, but there was a limit because up to a certain point, uh, this could only happen by uh, with a reshuffle of the capital structure of these institutions. And that would, uh, let's say, that started to create, let's say, uh, a resistance from the major shareholders. Uh, the, the latest capital increase at the World Bank, 2018, only happened after uh, China and Japan set and, and, and China accepted that it would not go up to where it should be, according to the cap capital criteria. Uh, uh, China should have uh, given its GDP 10% uh, of the capital of the World Bank. That would surpass Japan as the second largest shareholder. And Japan said, no, no, no. And the US also didn't like their much idea. So this is to, and, and China ended up accepting 6%. Okay. The signal was uh, China took it okay. So there are limits to upon where I can go in these institutions. So, okay, let's create other ones. They call the BRICS. The BRICS said, okay, let's do our bank, but we have to keep the 20% same share for everybody, which limit the, the size of the, enemy, the, the, uh, the BRICS bank. And the Chinese said, okay, so they create another one. <laughs> uh, and to different stances, the national development banks also uh, have played a role. So we are likely to see the continuation of this fragmentation uh, of the multilateral development uh, financing uh, structure. 
which creates risks and, 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 and opportunities. The risk is, is to have these institutions competing, uh, for instance, uh, downgrading their, their uh, let's say, their systems, their, their, their type of surveillance, their functionalities and so on. Uh, on the other hand, there are many opportunities and I'm a witness of that as well. Remember the, the, the project in the Philippines that I was referring to mentioning? When the project was very close to completion, the Chinese came, the AIIB came, knocked the door and asked, can I join it? And that was a triple win. Uh, uh, the, Filip the Filipinos like it because they could have more money for that project. The World Bank liked it because the team was facing lending constraints in order to do it all. And the AIRB was able to incorporate in its portfolio a nice project and they could learn uh, with uh, the termination, uh, conclusion of the project. So in a nutshell, there are challenges, but there are also opportunities created by this fragmentation. That's, that's the, the new world, which is a new world with uh, multipolarity, with a multiplicity of institutions and of structures. Welcome to the new world. So you've just made this, this beautiful metaphor of institutions and pollinization. So speaking of multilateral development organizations, what's your position regarding calls for reform on the Bretton Woods institution? Do you think that this, this pollinization still works with the, the Bretton Woods system we have? I would say that the Bretton Woods system will uh, have to live with this emergence of new actors. That's, that, that's the way to go. Uh, see, uh, uh, the World Bank headquarters uh, are two blocks from the White House. Would one imagine that you would have a China, if not dominating, but, uh, but uh, uh, with a, a position equivalent to the US in such an institution, you will not have, you'll not face that. You have to live with that. The Europeans, if, if, if the, uh, the, uh, the BRICS countries and particularly China was to increase its share in the capital, the, uh, the, the, uh, the European share would also decrease dramatically. And there is something important basic about the governance of the Bretton Woods Institution, which is the fact that when the Europeans and the US add their votes, they get more than 50%, which is what underlies the fact that since their creation, you always have a, an European leading the IMF and an American leading the World Bank. So, and this is possible because as I said, when they bend together, Europeans and Americans have more than 50% of the share vote. Uh, so uh, one cannot expect uh, a major change in the structure or reform beyond that. But we have the other ones. On the trade front, oh, what's the current status of the long-awaited EU-Mercosur trade deal? Just to start unpacking a bit more this reform yeah, uh, look, uh, that was a fantastic signal, uh, finally an achievement. When I was in the government, I, I, sp I spent not a long time, but I spent one year there. 
was part of the team of the Ministry of Finance that had Marcos Lisboa as the Secretary of Economic Policy, Joaquin Levy as the Secretary of uh, the Treasury, George Hashid from the ranks of the uh, Revenue Service uh, as the Secretary for Revenues, Bernard P as the, the Executive Secretary, and I was the, the Secretary for International Affairs. At that time, uh, clearly, uh, you know, I accompanied the, the negotiations uh, done by the Itamaraty, by the Minister of Point Affairs, together with the Minister of then existing Ministry of Industry and Development. And, and you know, it was already on. So this thing started so long ago, half a, 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 a quarter of a century. So the news of the achievement of a conclusion uh, was really great news for all that it entails in terms of a trade opening and so on. Now, uh, the risk, the, the, the looming risk, more than looming, I would say the real risk, the actual risk upon the whole thing has been the mismanagement of the, uh, of the Amazon forest in, uh, by Brazil in rec more recently, in, during this Bolsonaro government. Uh, because that gives ground, of course, for the, the resistance inside the Eurozone uh, to the agreement. And that also is part of uh, an overall trend in the world to highlight, to increase the weight of the environment standards, including the, 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 the climate change agenda, and therefore the Amazon issue uh, as a key component. Look, and it's such a pity because Brazil, uh, the, Brazil the Brazilian contribution, the negative contribution to climate change comes almost entirely from the, that issue, the Amazon deforestation. Our energy system is clean, uh, given that it is based on hydroelectricity uh, hydro and other forms of uh, clean energy. So we are fine. So that's an asset that Brazil has to bring to negotiations and so on. But the major contribution, still Brazil gives a, a major contribution, a negative contribution to the climate change issue uh, from the deforestation. So if we make things worse on the case of deforestation, uh, that let's say will uh, become a block toward opening uh, uh, market access for our products, including agriculture products. Uh, we should keep in sight, for instance, that European Commission uh, may introduce a carbon tax uh, as part of its strategy regarding climate change. In that, and the carbon tax, uh, and, and one may expect as well, uh, President Biden joining in in, in, in such a, a kind of movement. That definitely will change things in some natural resource intensive uh, uh, activities, uh, the competitiveness of countries. So Brazil may be additionally harmed uh, because of its neglect on with respect to the Amazon deforestation. So things are really serious in that regard. And one of the possible victims of that uh, might be the European Union and Mercosur agreement. 
Otaviano, you recently wrote a piece entitled No Woman, No Growth, The Case for Increasing Women's Leadership in Latin America. Can you summarize your arguments for our audience? Definitely so. Uh, I'm passionate about the, the, this subject. Uh, I've, that's an area where I have published some uh, academic articles in peer-reviewed journals and also dedicated uh, uh, several shorter pieces in uh, policy papers and blogs and so on. And that comes particularly from the time I was uh, vice president at the World Bank. And, and my team there, uh, two staff members of my vice presidency, led an important work, an important world development report, uh, 2012, yes. Uh, which was gender equality and economic growth. And as it happens with those uh, WDRs, the World Development Reports uh, prepared by the World Bank, they, they explore, they, they never exhaust, but they go all the way in, in collecting the evidence and the arguments about the theme. And the bottom line uh, of, of the, the, the report is something like, look, gender equality uh, including, of course, uh, uh, women, matters not only as a subject in itself, uh, it's not by chance that gender equality is one of the sustainable development goals. So it's important as part of the agenda of human rights, but also economically, uh, because gender equality matters for economic growth. Let me, uh, there are several channels I have explored through which gender equality affects economic growth. I even uh, with, with a colleague developed uh, uh, an overlapping generations modeling uh, methodology to try to estimate the slight improvement in, in gender equality in Brazil was responsible for some of the economic growth that the the, the, the Brazil exhibited in the last decade. So it's, ser uh, it's serious thing. And, and uh, let me give some very, uh, a very uh, good example. Some of you in the audience may not know, but uh, uh, there is a reason why the conditional cash transfers in Brazil go to the women. Yeah, you know why? It's because the women are better in one, at least one important aspect. Um, back in the 90s, a survey was made in Brazil uh, comparing households where uh, women had a, a strong say on the resource allocation with the other ones uh, otherwise. And, and you know what happened, what the survey revealed? That the babies in the households where the, the women had the strong say on the allocation of resource were taller and had a higher weight than in the other house. And that survey was replicated in some parts of the world and the results were confirmed. So think of that. Uh, if you have higher gender equality in terms of uh, the, the distribution of power uh, in a household, uh, the likelihood of having healthier and taller uh, kids is higher than otherwise. And obviously this has implications 
in the future economic growth of a country because health matters, because uh, in education also this, this is also uh, the case. So gender equality uh, affects economic growth. Let me give another example that I have to, to mention. I accompany this more closely in Africa. Uh, Ghana, in Ghana, uh, the, uh, at least at the time when we did the report, uh, women did not have an equal access to agricultural defensives uh, to men in Ghana. And that had an impact on, on the productivity of the agriculture in Ghana because uh, there are many places, many areas where the women, uh, you know, are the, 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 the uh, because, uh, because of wars, because of, of a man uh, departing and so on, in parts of Ghana and in, in many land areas in Ghana, the women are the ones who do the, the job of, uh, of uh, uh, producing. And obviously if these ladies do not have access to agricultural defensives, their productivity is lower than otherwise. And, and I remember the estimates collected by my colleagues at the time, pointing how the productivity in agriculture in Ghana could could raise, could rise uh, by something uh, close to 30%. So the lack of access to agricultural defensives uh, made up, made an impact. Or, and, and this is go beyond. I happen to be, uh, by coincidence, my wife and I, we are very close friend to the current first lady of Afghanistan. Uh, and and because you know she uh, she and her husband uh, they before he became president uh, they they lived here in Washington he worked he he is the most brilliant guy I have ever uh, heard uh, talking about fragile states he knows the business and his wife the first lady of Afghanistan is Lebanese and she told us once that she was not entitled to have a banking account in Lebanon. <laughs> And of course, and not to speak of uh, land titles, land titles which are forbidden for women in some parts of the world, uh, in Africa, particularly in parts of Africa. So uh, just think of, uh, of the gains in productivity in, in, in economic growth that may be accrued by a country that uh, provides equal opportunities regardless of gender. That is an obvious. Brazil is not the, the, the worst case in an index of uh, any index of uh, equality of opportunities in that regard, but it's far from different here. We have seen things like uh, an increase in the levels of, of uh, schooling of uh, women in Brazil in some areas, make them put them in equal uh, on an equal stage as men, but still uh, there's some remaining uh, prejudice that ended, end up, let's say, affecting negatively the women. So the gender equality matters, including for economic reasons. The World Bank recently published a global flagship report on the fight against uh, corruption. 
what is the role of multilateral organizations in the fight against corruption? And what success has there been? And what are the major bottlenecks regarding any implementation to try to fight corruption? Right, Joseph. Let me tell you also another story uh, that I that I watched and uh, which is very much telling. Uh, in the beginning of the, the decade, I'm talking about 2010, uh, we had the, the transfer, the coming from the IDB to the World Bank of a guy who I became friends of. And I always called him my favorite American marshal because he had worked before the Justice Department, including police. And the guy made in a, a presentation beginning of the 2000s, uh, remarking that the, the uh, many criminal processes regarding corruption in the region, in Latin America, did not go to fruition to, to the full conclusion, reaching the top of the schemes because of lack of the plea bargain because of the lack of, uh, of, uh, of uh, negotiations, uh, not only a plea bargain, but also the, uh, the negotiation with the perpetrators and so on. Uh, and uh, wow, I, I watched that. To a large extent, the Lava Jato, the car wash operation, was the first major case in which after having the plea bargain clause, as a, as a component of, of our legal system that went, let's say, to full development. Uh, was it not for the plea bargain, the Lava Jato would not have reached the top. And, uh, and, and so I, that was clearly for me an example of the pollinizing role of the World Bank. The World Bank may, let's say, spread and, and diffuse uh, uh, good practice that if adopted by the countries may make, let's say, the fight against corruption more effective and more likely to, to succeed. Uh, so anti-corruption efforts is not something to be done by bootlatter institutions and rather by the countries themselves but it's still uh, the knowledge acquisition uh, that may happen through these institutions is helpful in that regard. Uh, this goes beyond, of course, uh, since their inception, uh, these institutions, the, the World Bank, they have mechanisms to ring fence their own projects. But we're not talking about this here. We're talking about being much broader in helping countries to go beyond uh, the specifically the projects financed by, by the World Bank. Otherwise, in a corrupt environment, there is a cherry picking. So you, you take a, a, a transportation, take a road, and then the guys say, okay, this part here is financed by the World Bank, we will keep it untouched. But all these others, <laughs> well, let's do our business here. <laughs> so the relevance of uh, ring fencing against corruption uh, has to go beyond the, the World Bank financed projects. You've just mentioned Lava Jato. So for this next block of questions, let's center on Brazil. Okay. Okay, Taviana. And uh, look, for our listeners, if 
someone picked up the second mention of polonization and wants to write a paper on the polonization role of, of multilateral financial institutions, I think they, they should reach out and try to, to get some knowledge from you. This is a beautiful metaphor. Otaviano, looking now specifically at Brazil, as I said, in your opinion, what are the current economic challenges the country faces? Um, also, which has been written about the deindustrialization of the Brazilian economy. What do you see as the most pressing challenges of Brazilian industry? The two questions are somehow attached. Right. Uh, Fabricio, let me allude to a more, let's say, not permanent, but a, a long-standing disease that the, that the Brazilian economy has been facing in, in the last decades. I, I, I used this image of a double disease affecting the Brazilian economy, underlying the, uh, the low growth over four decades. We are stuck, we are trapped in a middle income level. It is not by chance. This double disease, I, I, I call it a combination of uh, an anemia of productivity, combined with uh, an obesity of the public sector, including the fiscal obesity. The, I, I say anemia of productivity because the, uh, the performance of a productivity in Brazil has been lackluster for several decades. Uh, when I mean productivity, I think of the total factor productivity. I think of the, the result of, of uh, of the use of uh, uh, physical capital, labor, uh, nature, and so on. And this is, is one, one can see the estimates of that. And, <clears throat> and to be frank, the country has only grown over this period. Uh, temporarily, for instance, during the, the uptick phase of commodity price cycles, as we had, in the first decade of the new millennium, and or when uh, there is some process of uh, incorporation of, uh, of, uh, of uh, the population into the labor market, as we had in the first decade of the new millennium. Because that's the easy growth. You, know, you incorporate people, you employ people, and uh, you formalize uh, jobs, for instance, and that leads to, 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 to higher growth. But that's temporary. Once you know there is the exhaustion of the of the of the space for incorporating labor force, and by the way, the country is getting old. is uh, It's incredible the speed of uh, the the demographic change in Brazil. Just to give an idea. Uh, it took 25 years in terms of a change of average uh, uh, age in Brazil what it took France 125 years. So we are aging fast. And that means that the pyramid is, uh, the, the demographic dividend is almost exhausted. So we cannot count simply on that. One also has to, to mention the low rates of investment to GDP, and that obviously also affects the productivity. But overall, we have a low performance when it comes to productivity. 
Uh, and that has to do, we don't have the time to go through it entirely, but uh, you know, that has to do with uh, the, the education, the quality of education. We had made a progress in schooling. Uh, it's incredible how, how uh, the schooling average of the younger people in Brazil uh, is substantially higher than, than of their parents. But it's still quality of education is lagging behind. Uh, uh, we also have problems with uh, the lack of investments in infrastructure, which they that affects the productivity because it leads to waste. Uh, uh, the loss of, uh, of uh, soybeans uh, because of a lack of storage and, 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 and transportation facilities in the appropriate manner is, is clear. But also the doing business environment in Brazil, the, the environment, uh, the business environment uh, takes a toll from, from, from uh, productivity. So we have these deep structural problems that lie behind the, uh, the anemic productivity increase. At the same time, we also, I will get to the conjecture, okay? No worries. <laughs> uh, at the same time, you have the, uh, uh, the public sector, which has been called to let's say do something uh, since the, the, the democratization about the legacy, the dire legacy that we have in terms of, uh, uh, that we had in terms of misery, in terms of people left out and, and so on. And some social programs, some social spending has been created and that's good. The problem is that this has happened while pre-existing privilege have not been touched. And we keep fighting some of these social privileges. So this led to a process in which the public spending in Brazil rise, mandated by law, at a pace, independently of whoever is sitting there at the Palacio of Alvorada. Uh, just to give you a figure, uh, from uh, 1992 to 2016, 92 to 2016. So that includes Itamar, that includes FHC, Fernando Cardoso, that includes uh, Lula, that includes Dilma, that includes Temer, Bolsonaro. This whole period, on average, on average, public spending in Brazil grew at a pace of 6% in real terms above inflation on average. So that exponentially is humongous. And, and it's mandated by law, there's the several you know, the pensions and everything. And this without uh, 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 a due impact on social, on, on growth. Uh, when you, you know, measure uh, I saw estimates by my friend uh, Nina, a professor at the uh, uh, Tulane University, uh, Nora Lustig. There is also an estimate made by, by, by the Treasury uh, of Brazil when Mansueto was there, uh, trying to gauge the impact, the combined impact of uh, tax in Brazil, taxation, and transfers by the government. And what these studies have shown is that instead of distributing income, Brazil tends to concentrate income. 
Yeah, that's terrible. Despite most of the media, despite conditional gas transfers, all you know, the outcome of this rising social spending is not necessarily a better uh, distribution profile, and also not uh, uh, growth. Because think of this: while the 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 the, uh, the public spending was rising steadily on average by six percent in real terms. This, the, the public spending on infrastructure or the, the spending in infrastructure in Brazil was below the minimum, the minimum threshold level necessary to maintain the precarious infrastructure. That's an estimate made by the World Bank. The World Bank has uh, two years ago uh, estimated something like the Brazil needs to invest at least 3% of, of its GDP in infrastructure, just to keep whatever is there. Whereas Brazil has not, despite this rising public spending, uh, been able to invest uh, more than 2.7, 2 2.5% of its infra uh, in infrastructure. So the rising public spending is not necessarily good in terms of uh, income distribution, nor, and much less so in terms of supporting the, 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 the economic activity. So this is clearly in obesity. Uh, we are forced, and that's why the, the agenda of reforms uh, is so important on both sides of this equation, on the side of productivity and on the size of, uh, of, uh, of uh, the public spending. We had the, the constitutionally mandated public spending, uh, as we all know, and that has functioned uh, as a sort of a straight jacket. The patient is sick. The patient, uh, the public sector is not capable by itself of uh, going on a diet uh, to get healthier. So we put a, a straight jacket uh, and to force the patient to do the reforms, to do the diet. That was the, 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 the thinking behind the, the spending cap. The problem is that we're not fast enough in implementing the reforms. We did the one on pensions, could have been done before, okay, but then we stopped. And so the, 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 the street jacket is becoming very, very, very narrow. And that's the most immediate, uh, let's say, challenge faced by the Brazilian economy. What to do in order to, to make feasible the, the obedience to the, the, to the spending cap or adapt it in the next few years uh, without generating a crisis. Because the problem is that, you know, uh, we saw this year uh, the, 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 the government response, the policy response to COVID was significant. Uh, it made a difference between the Brazilian GDP uh, falling down 9% versus probably the something close to 4.5 that we're gonna see. Uh, it saved many lives by exactly having the transfers of income, maybe a bit beyond because it went, it was too broad, ended up giving money to people who would not necessarily necessitate it. That's why the savings have increased a bit in some households. Uh, but that was, uh, the, uh, th that led to this steep increase in the public debt as a share of GDP. You're gonna end 2020 
with something between 95 and 100% as a public debt. And the treasury was able to finance itself by resorting to, to reserves of, uh, of, uh, of short-term uh, public debt securities with the central bank by, by short-term issuance. And, and that has led to this shortening of the time horizon of, of, of the public debt and just in a nutshell, we, uh, we have fiscal risks, which may uh, lead us to uh, a, a crisis. Uh, it's interesting to note how the, the, the yield curve of interest rates has steepened after August. Uh, the central bank had decreased to negative levels, the basic interest rates, the right thing to do. Uh, and then suddenly by August, we start watching this steepening of the yield curve just because of the rumors, because of the possibilities that the fiscal spending cap might be abandoned next year. The, 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 I wrote a piece, a recent piece, and I'm writing currently a piece with uh, Marcio Naclani, Professor Marcio Naclani of USP, where we are exploring two different scenarios, one pessimistic and one optimistic, besides a baseline. And the trajectory of the Brazilian economy in the near future would take one or the other, depending on the interaction of the risk premium and therefore uh, interest rates and the exchange rate, which combined may lead to trajectories of debt to GDP, which might be, let's say, more smooth or very much, let's say, explosive, uh, despite the uptick the, uh, on the public debt to GDP ratio of this year. So uh, the fiscal risks are really, really a major concern. While we should keep on moving with the agenda to increase productivity, the tax reform uh, is so much important because remember that I, that I included the business environment as one factor behind the anemia of productivity. And the tax reform is one component of the business environment that takes a toll the, 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 on productivity. The number of hours, the number of people, the effort that has to be dedicated by companies in Brazil just to comply with the tax uh, uh, obligation uh, differs Brazil from all the others that I know in the doing business report made by the bank, among 189 countries, there are only two that have tax systems worse than the Brazilian. <laughs> and, and so, but that's the only one. We, we had a, a great news with the, the uh, finalization of the bankruptcy reform, something that started when I was in government almost 20 years ago. <laughs> Uh, we are sluggish in, in doing the reforms, but uh, the major challenge I would say come from the fiscal and from implementing the structural reforms that would lead to higher productivity in Brazil. So then let me zoom out now and ask you about one of the main factors fueling all this fiscal instability because not only Brazil, but the, the region, Latin America, or specifically if we focus on South America, um, had spent a lot over the past 
20 years fueled by China. Yeah. So um, how do you see China's role in the region? What's actually doing in terms of financial help, trade finance, and other forms of right. economic involvement with the region? I think right. China is, 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 is the, the biggest factor we have here. Um, Yes, you explain this, this fiscal problem after yeah. years of spending, if it's rational or irrational, we'll leave it to you. But um, just to understand a bit of the role of China and the spending. That's a great question. And uh, of course, I have written about it. <laughs> uh, recently, I wrote a piece on uh, to the America's Quarterly uh, on what I called um, uh, a morphing presence of China uh, in financing uh, Latin America. China is obviously increasingly relevant on trade and on finance. And uh, to some extent, and may more or less, uh, on technology. Trade, trade is obvious, is, has become the major uh, destination for exports for several countries in the, in the region. Uh, if not the first, the second. Uh, particularly those who, let's say, are natural resource intensive and, 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 and produce commodities, which is the case of Brazil, Chile, and, and so on. And in uh, China, I want to call your attention to something that I deem as very important. China is clearly making some moves to diversify their sources of, uh, of natural resource uh, products. Uh, one of those coincidence of life, uh, back in 2006, at the time I was um, uh, an executive director at the World Bank, and I led uh, a mission of colleagues at the board to Russia, 2006. And one of the places we went in Russia was the Republic of Tatarstan, which is closer to South Asia. And, and uh, closer to, 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 to uh, uh, the other points. And the prime minister, uh, the president, the president of the Republic of Tatarstan, called me apart, 2006, to ask me to, to, uh, to help them. They were trying to get in touch with the uh, Brazilians uh, because they, they were planning, 2006, to make Tatastan, a hub of produ producing soybeans. Wow, I said, and you know, so guess what? Uh, two weeks ago, I saw the announcement of China of uh, 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 a plan to support the, uh, the, the, the uh, Tatastan as a hub of, of soybeans. <laughs> and I was in a webinar uh, last week, or, th or this week, I can't remember, and someone mentioned the presence of Brazilians in, in Tatarstan. And China is doing the same with respect to some other uh, products with uh, Vietnam and other ports. So the Chinese, this comes to my mind because unfortunately I, I saw something about President Bolsonaro bragging about China's dependence on Brazil. Jeez. Uh, 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 
it has to be a ground reality. So China will remain important and we should pay attention as a nation of our exports. On the financial side, the reason why I called uh, uh, the attention to a morphing uh, relationship is that in the last few years, uh, the profile of Chinese capital flows to the region has changed. In the beginning, well, and everything has happened in a short time span. Right? China was nothing, financially speaking, uh, in the region back in 2005. And since then, in 15 years, the guys became relevant, particularly in some, in some case. But in the beginning, uh, China's uh, financial flows were mostly money coming from the CDB, the China Development Bank, from the Axim Bank, directly either to states or to state companies in some countries uh, to finance uh, investments in, in commodity production, like oil in Venezuela, like oil in Ecuador. Uh, and, and they were, uh, let's say, they, most of these had as guarantees, as collaterals, the delivery of oil. But that's one relationship, which is arms left. So the Chinese banks give the money and say, I don't mind, I don't wanna know what you do with the money, but I want you to make sure that you deliver to me back oil. And this ended up leading to some problems with Chinese uh, projects financed by, by those institutions in Latin America. We had a problem with, uh, in Argentina, uh, President Macri, then President Macri, uh, uh, there was a denounce of, uh, of problems with, you know, this, but this has changed. Uh, uh, in case of Venezuela, the Chinese are only giving the, the just amount of money to avoid Venezuela to, to default with them, but not more than that. Whereas uh, we have watched uh, an increase, particularly up to 2017, 18, 19, this was not that much exuberant, but uh, up to 12, uh, 12, 17, and that was the basis of my analysis. We start watching capital flows from, from China to other sectors, to infrastructure sectors. China offering itself to Chinese state companies or, or, or private companies offering to, to, to invest and manage ports. Uh, energy. We, we, we had in Brazil, uh, the, now the presence of the Chinese investors in the transmission lines coming from the, from, uh, uh, the dams in the Amazon. And also uh, the presence of Chinese investments in, in, in oil. Remember the, 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 the last, the latest oil auction of the pre-salt, we didn't have Dutch or, or British or Americans. We had the Chinese, the only foreigners to come. So in this matters because the kind of relationship of this kind of investment is different from uh, the arm's length of the relationship that I was mentioning in, in the beginning uh, regarding uh, collaterals in oil and so on. This is a long-term relationship. It's a, it's a management and so on. And, 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 and this is uh, something that Brazil needs dramatically. We need infrastructure investments. Uh, we need, the region needs infrastructure investments. And, and, and so uh, the Chinese investment might help. 
The third area is more difficult to deal with, which is the technology. And by the way, finance as well. The Chinese in, 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 in smaller scale uh, is also delving into tech, uh, fintech and, and, and some financial areas. But the third area, and obviously some of you may be exactly guessing that I have in mind 5G <laughs> technology, uh, entering into telecommunications and so on, uh, that the country will face, Brazil will face probably, if not a, a, a dilemma, but it is, uh, will we align with any of the two uh, warring uh, powers, China or US? Uh, will we block Huawei of, uh, you know, being in Brazil? Uh, you, you, and the signals in other parts of the world is, has not clear yet. You, we saw the UK uh, moving from opening the space for, for, for Huawei and then blocking the UK. But Germany uh, has said that it will allow Huawei to be there. Well, we no longer have Mr. Trump at the White House, but we have President Bolsonaro. So where we go in that regard? So this relationship with uh, the use of technology is, let's say, uh, the murky one, the one less clear about where the country goes. But we have to, to keep in mind the triple dimension uh, of the relationship with China, trade, uh, investments, and particularly in infrastructure, and, and technology. Otaviano, um, I think many of our listeners, be they um, uh, graduate students or, or senior faculty members, I think many of us would be interested in seeing how you look at the field of development, um, economics in the region, and what would you signal as possible lines of inquiry, um, sort of a current research agenda? What's out there? What are, what are important questions that you would recommend that um, some of us focus on um, that are important in your point of view? Right. I, I would say, Joseph, uh, there is, let's say, a way to go, the potential for improvement in our knowledge about incentives faced by agents and the way by which uh, different types of policies affect those incentives. On the macro side, we, on the macroeconomic side, we have come long way. That not, not where I would foresee, let's say, major novelties uh, had. We have now, it, it's a matter of implementation. There's always something to learn, particularly in the case of finance and so on. But, you know, it's more uh, an issue of, uh, interpretation, use of data, and, and doing good use of that knowledge. But an area definitely where there is a way to go is to study, and it's not by chance that the most recent, most of the recent Nobel Prize have come to that, is on the microeconomics, is on experiments, is on uh, testing, on, on learning how uh, economic agents react to incentives and how, therefore, policies, different types of policies, lead to the outcomes that one desires, be it in terms of uh, higher growth, higher efficiency, 
or better income distribution, inclusion, and so on. So I guess uh, I, I don't want to disappoint those who prefer to study macroeconomic issues. But the point is that in terms of uh, getting a bigger bank for the buck, I would say that's where we have a, 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 a wider horizon ahead. We're very quickly running out of time, but I didn't want to let you leave without asking, what have you recently either read, seen, or heard uh, from your vantage point that you would like to, to recommend as, as being worthwhile to, uh, to follow up? Uh, oh, all right. I, uh, let me uh, mention, in this case, uh, two things. Uh, and sorry for the macroeconomist, but I'm going to mention something more macro. It's uh, a report uh, done by David Levy from the Levy Institute. That, uh, you know, is on Northern State, but it's available online and so on. On on bubbles, uh, because it it shows it depicts how dependent the the uh, economic growth has been over the last decades the U.S. economy on on the occasional uh, resurgence of uh, of uh, bubbles not necessarily bubbles in a bad way but uh. Uh, underlying, let's say, the trend towards secular stagnation on the real side of the U.S. economy. Uh, the secular stagnation is not more, more let's say, uh, painful uh, because of the has been less dramatic uh, in the recent period because of the the uh, strength of the support coming from monetary policy and and, and financial. And, and, and the equivalent and the accompanying financial measures and so on. But at the end of the day, this comes with the risks of uh, 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 erupting, uh, creating bubbles. And, uh, and, and we have to live with this. But I like very much the way by which uh, David Lavitt approached and showed this through several indicators. I would strongly recommend. Uh, uh, I also want to 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 highlight uh, a, a, a piece of work, a working paper uh, that has been released recently by the IMF. Uh, I apologize for not remembering the name of the authors on the 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 uh, the uh, the opportunities and challenges that pose to Latin America by China's rebalancing. China's rebalancing, and, and we, that would take us a long <laughs> discussion, but it's, uh, uh, China has been on uh, rebalancing since the, the beginning of the decade, sometimes faster, sometimes slower, and uh, rebalancing towards uh, lower investment to GDP ratios, and therefore less dependence on, on, on trade, trade surpluses with the rest of the world towards domestic, higher domestic consumption. There's also uh, a rebalancing out of in manufacturing towards service gradually. It is also rebalancing of China towards the upper levels in the global value chains. 
uh, optimized by the discussions on, on, on 5G platforms and so on. This will bring implications for Latin America and the Caribbean, and I like very much the way by which the IMF guys uh, approach the topic. And last, uh, with, with no, no hint of modesty, of course, but I, I allow me for that, there's a forthcoming book coming to, to press, uh, written by myself, on globalization and development. So I take the chance to make uh, uh, an advertisement of it. Uh, obviously, I agree with everything that is there. <laughs> right. right. Um, Otaviano, we have a tradition here at Econo Politics. Since many of our listeners travel frequently to the region, uh, usually to do research, but every once in a while also on vacation. So we'd like to ask you to recommend a very special place in the region, any place that you think is particularly worthwhile. It could be a bar, your favorite restaurant, a good bookstore. Oh, um, so Otaviano, what is your recommendation? What would you um, bring to our attention in the region? I I will go to the spot where I come from, which is Aracaju, capital of the state of Sergipe. And, uh, and, and I, a place where I went very much during my childhood and when I was a teenager, particularly, which is called Atalaya Nova. Atalaya Nova is, as the name says in Portuguese, a beach. Uh, which is not only beautiful and 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 and, and pleasant, but uh, with uh, you know uh, several places, several houses, and so on, and it's in the in an island in front of Aracaju, and you have on the one side the, a river uh, that flows into the ocean, and the, the, you can access the place by boat or you can go by road through a bridge. And uh, I dream of uh, an opportunity again to go back and, and enjoy it. And of course, no worries, we'll find there nice spots to eat and, 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 and to stay. So Atalaya Nova in Aracaju, Sergipe. Uh, Very good. Very good. Thank you. We've come to the end of our time. And I'm sure everyone will agree that it's been a very insightful and engaging overview of the role of multilateral lending organizations in the region, as well as a great update of the current economic state of the local economics. Sorry for the additional technical problems. We have the, the return on Joseph, I'm so sorry. And once again, thank you very much, Otaviano Canuto, for joining us today at EconoPolitics. Thank you, Joe, for co-hosting the show. And thank you who watched us and listened to us on our podcast. Thank you, Otaviano. Um, and just to let everyone know, we have two additional podcasts this year. We'll be back again in the new year with an exciting list of guests and discussions on the politics of Latin America. Otaviano, thank you. And uh, we'll have to have you back again soon. Until then, stay well, stay safe. Thank you. You too.